you have your Bibles, if you would open them, please, to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29. As we continue our study in the life of Abraham and his line, his descendants after him, I want to revisit briefly something we saw last Sunday. In considering the deception of Isaac, Jacob deceived his father with the help of his mother. We saw how that all three were in fact marking or marring the picture, the painting that God had sought to be a revelation of his grace. By choosing Jacob, God was showing his grace. And Isaac's like, no, I I want the older son, I want Esau, my favorite, to receive the blessing. Um, God, in fact, had been quite explicit while Rebecca was pregnant that two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. The idea of conflict is is strongly hinted at. And God's reason for reversing the normal order, usually it's the firstborn who gets the blessing and is responsible for things. The firstborn is a special position. Um, But God's reason for reversing the order was so that he might show grace toward Jacob. It's like, oh no, this is just a natural thing. No, it's very unnatural that Jacob, in fact, would be the one to get the blessing. As Paul wrote in Romans 9, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So they hadn't even been born yet, and God had already chosen. They hadn't done anything good or bad. God had chosen. And Isaac's insistence on giving the blessing to Esau was a violation of God's picture, God's purpose of of grace. This is what grace is all about. It's not the natural order of things. It's actually quite unnatural. It is what God chooses to do. Rebecca and Jacob, on the other hand, sought to help the grace of God. You know, they knew the promise that God had made, but it didn't look as, like it was going to happen, so they wanted to help God along by uh, engaging in a very elaborate deception. They did not honor God. They did not trust him enough to honor him and instead resorted to deception. They should have trusted God instead of resorting to scheming and deception. Um, Like Isaac, they violated the picture of God's grace. What they did was gave us a picture of grace plus works. God's grace is not enough. Here, let's give God a helping hand, um, even if it means deceiving Isaac. And we looked at last week, at the beginning of the sermon, Um, at the story of Moses as a comparison that the Israelites had left Egypt. They had been freed out of slavery. They are wandering to a certain degree in the Sinai Peninsula, which is sort of desert area, and they've run out of water. And they begin to complain. And Moses goes to the Lord and says, listen, they're about to kill me. They want to stone me. What should I do? And God tells him, take your staff the one that you used to strike the the river Nile and it turned to blood, take it and hit the rock and water will come out. And sure enough, that's precisely what happened. 
40 years later, at the northern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, they're already in what we would call Palestine, they run out of water again. And the people are unhappy. At this point, they have uh, herds. Um, They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. They have a lot of animals, they have children, and there's no water. And so uh, Moses and Aaron go to the Lord, and the Lord says, take your staff and go to the rock and speak to it, and water will come out. But that's not what Moses did, is it? He went to the rock and he hit it not once, but twice in violation of God's command. And as a result, he was not allowed to enter the promised land because he disobeyed God. It's like, what's the big deal? He hit it, he didn't speak. Um, what, why is this such a big thing? He violated the symbolism. Christ is our rock. We read that over and over again in the book of Psalms. He was smitten, he was stricken for our sins once for all. You don't do it again, it's once for all. And as a result, as I said, uh, Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. Now the question, the reason I bring this up by review is I want you to consider this. It's a question. Did Isaac, Rebecca, and Jacob know that they were violating the picture, the symbolism of God's grace? Did Moses know that he had violated the symbolism intended regarding the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? Did Moses go, oh my goodness, I've ruined the picture that God intended? No. Moses didn't know about the coming Messiah, certainly didn't know about Jesus or him being crucified. What he did know was that he had disobeyed God. He was to be obedient and he did not. Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob lived like 500 years, at least 500 years before Moses. So did they like sit down and have a power and say, you know what, we, we've messed up. We have violated the symbolism of God's grace. Isaac by going against the promise and Rebekah and Jacob by trying to help the promise along through deception. No, they had a word from the Lord, okay? Isaac tried to go against the word of the Lord. Rebecca and Jacob tried to help the word of the Lord to bring about what God had promised. None of them knew the picture that God was painting. And what is required, what was required of them and of us is not to know the painting. It's like, oh, that's why God is doing this. What is required is that we be obedient. We don't need to know what part of the painting we are. We may be in the shadows of the painting. We may be in the dark part of the painting. We don't know. What we are called to do is to be obedient, not to know what God is doing. And oftentimes I've heard people say, well, the reason that such and such happened was because God was trying to do something. And I'm like, I don't think you can say that. You're claiming a knowledge that I think belongs to God alone. What we are called to do is to be obedient um, in all circumstances. That's the point of these stories. We are be obedient. The point of the story is not, oh, you need to know what God is doing and, th- and then you be obedient. 
No, you're to be obedient, and you still may not know why God has called you to that. In the case of Jacob, grace is the picture. That's what God's trying to paint right now, is a picture of grace. He wanted to demonstrate his grace. So he and his mother and his father messed up that picture, but God is God of grace. And so in the next chapter, we have the Lord appearing to Jacob on the stairway that goes from earth to heaven. At the top stood the Lord, and the Lord spoke directly to Jacob. And I don't know about you, but you know, if somebody's messed up the picture of grace, I'm not sure that I want to be gracious to them again, in a bigger way even. But that's precisely what God did. He made a series of promises that I'm with you, that is his presence. I will keep you, the promise of action, and I will bring you back to this land, the promise of a homecoming. He would accompany him, he would protect him, and he would bring him back. Jacob wakes up with reverence, with worship, and with commitment. He makes a series of vows. Now, in chapter 29, Jacob continues, because remember, he has left home. His mother and his father say, don't marry a local woman. You need to go back to where your mom is from, up in Mesopotamia, and there you can find a wife. But Rebecca's scheme is like, yeah, get out of town because Esau wants to kill you and let's wait till he cools off. We're going to read extensive passages today. Uh, bear with me. Um, but there's a point to all of this. So chapter 29 of Genesis, verses 1 through 13. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field and three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered there from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked him, is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And there Jacob told him all these things. Jacob reaches his destination. He doesn't know it, though. I mean, they don't have GPS. There's no map. He doesn't know that he is actually where he's supposed to be, at Haran, where his mother was from. Uh, he asks about the location. They tell him. And then he asks about his family. Do you know Laban? Laban is his mother's brother. 
Um, and the shepherds, he's like, yeah. And then interestingly, Jacob challenges their practice. Um, he feels like this, you know, you need to water sheep and you need to get them back out in the pasture. They're all gathered around the well. and This is not the way you do things. And I would say that this reminds us that this is what Jacob probably did as his vocation. You may remember that his mother told him to go and get a couple goats and she would prepare the food for Isaac, part of the deception. He was the shepherd. Esau was the wild man out there hunting venison. He meets Rachel, who is a shepherdess. He kisses her, which seems rather forward, and weeps aloud and tells her who he is. She goes and she gets her father, and he comes out and embraces him as well. By the way, this is it's almost like deja vu. This is sort of like with Rebecca, when uh, Abraham's servant goes to find Isaac a wife, and he meets a young woman at a well. It's Rebecca. And she runs and tells her father, but it is her brother Laban who comes to meet with the servant of Abraham. Jacob meets Laban, and we're told, Jacob told him all these things. I don't know if you've been keeping track. I sort of have, but it was sort of surprising. It has been 97 years since Rebekah left home. 97 years, because Isaac was 40 when the servant got Rebekah. He's now 137. That's why he's giving the blessing, because he thought he was about to die. It's been 97 years. They've not heard any word from Rebekah. So you can imagine Jacob had a lot to tell them. I'm fairly certain, though, um, that he didn't tell them everything. Like, oh, by the way, I'm here because I deceived my father and my brother wants to kill me. I'm pretty sure he didn't tell them that. But 97 years, there's a lot to tell. Yes, my parents got married. My mother I had trouble conceiving, but the Lord opened her womb, and I have a twin brother. Um, at this point, Jacob is 70 years old, so there's a lot, a lot to tell. So, what are we going to do with this guy Jacob, look if you would at verse 14. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. That's the one he met at the well. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better I give her to you than to some other men or some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. quite a romantic thing. But something is off here, isn't there? Um, when Abraham's servant came and got Rebecca, he didn't pay for Rebecca, did he? I mean, he gave gifts to Laban and Bethuel, her father, but he didn't buy her. But now Laban's like, 
yeah, um, work for me for seven years and then you can have my daughter. That is to say, he sells Rachel to Jacob for seven years of labor. By the way, looking ahead, there will come a time in chapter 31 when Jacob tells his wives, I want to go back to, the, you know, to Canaan, where I'm from. Um, and they say to him, does he, that are their father, not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Jacob loved Rachel, and it seemed the price was worth it. He was willing to work for seven years. He's 70 years old. He'll be 77 after seven years. Um, but he's willing to do it because he loved Rachel. By the way, in working for Rachel in order to marry her, he is fulfilling what, he, what his parents told him to do. Don't get a wife from the Canaanite women. What you should do is go up to where your mom is from, where Rebecca is from, and marry someone from there. And that's exactly what he plans to do. He wants to marry Rachel. Now verse 21, it's time to get married. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, my time is completed, and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave her his servant, or gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. We're going through this rather quickly, but just to hit some highlights. First of all, did you not get a sense how crude Jacob was in his request? Um, give me my wife. I want to lie with her. Uh, the message, Peterson's uh, translation has, I'm ready to consummate my marriage. You know, when a man goes to the woman's family to ask for her hand in marriage, I'm pretty sure generally you don't say, yes, I want to sleep with your daughter. It seems rather, rather crude. Um, but as precise as he is, his intention, he is not precise. You'll notice he doesn't say, I want to sleep with Rachel. What does he say? Give me my wife. Who, who is that? It actually opens the door for Laban to deceive him. Had Jacob said, uh, give me Rachel, then Laban would have to explain, well, no, our custom is that the older sister has to get married before the younger sister. But because he is so vague, like give me my wife, uh, Laban is allowed, if you wish, to, 
to deceive him. So there's a wedding feast. Um, the next morning, Jacob wakes up and finds that he's married to Leah, who is described as having weak eyes. And commentators really do not agree. Um, did she really have poor eyesight? Some have suggested uh, that women back then wore veils and you could only see their eyes and she had weak eyes. We're not sure that that, in fact, is the case. Um, or is it an expression that, you know, you don't want to say she's homely, you know, but you just, yeah, she's, she's got weak eyes, okay? And it is in contrast to her sister, who is lovely in form and beautiful. So it's sort of a less attractive older sister and the beautiful younger sister. When he confronts Laban, why have you deceived me? Laban explains, our custom is the older sister has to get married for, before the younger one. So here, the, the bridal week is seven, seven days, one week that he is to spend with Leah. And after that, then we'll have another wedding feast and you have seven days with Leah, but you are with Rachel, but then you have to work for me for another seven years. Both daughters are given maidservants and this will feature prominently in a few minutes. Uh, Zilpah and Bilhah. We are told that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Rachel's who he wanted to marry. He didn't want to marry her older sister. Just sort of a legal note here. When the law is given to Moses, such marriages are forbidden. Leviticus 18.18, do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife. That's sort of explicit. And have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. So don't marry sisters. But it's important to note, uh, in the light of the law, the writer of Genesis, who is Moses, doesn't hide the fact that Jacob, in fact, had violated the law. The law hadn't been given yet. He had married two sisters, uh, Leah and Rachel. Now, from verse 31 of chapter 29 to chapter 30, verse 24, we are told of the children that are born to Jacob. Um, he ends up by the end of chapter 30 with 11 sons and one daughter. The 12th son, Benjamin, will be born later uh, when they get into Canaan. So, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord has heard that I was not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will, will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Laban's deception created family problems. You have two wives. One is not loved. Uh, you know, people speak of a loveless marriage. Can you imagine Leah's position her sister is beautiful. She's the one that Jacob wanted. 
Laban foisted Leah on, you know, deception onto Jacob, and, and he doesn't love her. God recognizes her situation that she is not loved, and he opens her womb. And Leah appears to recognize the divine intervention, that this is something that God has done. So Reuben, which means see, a son, it's like, behold, a son, uh, it is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. And then she has a second son, Simeon, which means heard, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved. He gave me this one too. Then a third son, Levi, which means attached. Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And then finally, Judah means praise. This time I will praise the Lord. I find it interesting that at least from what the text tells us, Jacob didn't name his sons. Uh, It's Leah who gives her sons the names and the others will come in a few minutes. Um, But do you not hear Leah's pain? Do you not hear how she's she's like, um, now my husband will love me, she says about Reuben. The Lord has heard that I'm not loved. With Levi, now my third son, now my husband will be attached to me. I mean, the pain that she was in longing for her husband's love. But with the fourth son, it is God who becomes the focus of Leah. This time I will praise the Lord. Judah, in fact, means praise. Um, I would say, and this is my opinion, that at the end it is God who hears Leah's focus. But God responds in mercy. Mercy, because, again, in my opinion, Leah is not without guilt. I think in the same way that Jacob deceived Isaac, Leah deceived Jacob. I mean, did she possibly wear her sister's clothing, her sister's perfume? In any case, I mean, if she was acting under orders, she participated in the deception. And yet God is gracious and merciful And he gave her four sons. Now in chapter 30, it continues. But this time it is not Leah or Rachel who have sons, but Bilhah, who is Rachel's uh, handmaid. Verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and that through her I too can build a family. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me, for he has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, 
and I have one. So she named him Naphtali. Rachel cannot conceive. And in essence, she blames Jacob. And Jacob has a certain amount of wisdom to know, I'm not God, okay? God is the one who has kept you from having children. Obviously, the issue is not with Jacob. He's had four sons with her sister. So Rachel, like Sarah, says, Oh, I know. Sleep with my handmaiden, my, my maidservant, and then whatever children she has will be my children. It'll be my family. It's interesting. She doesn't see herself and Leah as part of the same family. It's like Leah has her family, her four sons, and I want to have my own family. Certainly a dysfunctional bunch of people here. And there is, in fact, a rivalry. She was jealous of her sister. The plan works, if you wish. Bilhah becomes Jacob's wife and bears him two sons. Dan, which means vindicated or judge. God has vindicated me. And then Naphtali, which means struggle. I've had a great struggle with my sister. And what does she say? I have won. I have won. Yeah. Well, two can play at this, Leah thinks. So look at verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant and Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, what good fortune, so she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Not to be outdone by her younger sister, the one that Jacob loves, she does what Rachel did. Here, take my maidservant Zilpah. And Zilpah, in fact, bears two sons to Jacob, Gad and Naphtali. There doesn't seem to be the sadness that we heard with the first three sons. It's like, now my husband will love me. But now she, particularly with Asher, uh, how happy I am. There is a certain joy that we now find creeping into Leah's life. If you thought the story was weird at this point, it gets a bit weirder. Look, if you would, at verse 14. In this, this passage, Rachel sells Jacob to Leah. <laughs> oh. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. 
Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. I don't know if you know about mandrakes. It's, it's a root plant, and when brought out of the ground, sort of looks like a human being, like you have like arms and legs and, and a torso. Um, it has medicinal uses. Uh, in the past, it's been used uh, for pain. Uh, it's been used for insomnia, different purposes. But what most people associate it with is with regard to fertility. So Rachel wants mandrakes, I'm assuming, for fertility. She can't have children. She hasn't had any. And so when Reuben, the firstborn of Leah, finds mandrakes, she wants them. And Leah's like, yeah, you took my husband. Now you want to take what my son has. And so they come up with an agreement. Give me the mandrakes. You can have Jacob for the night. Um, Certainly a lot of selling going on. Uh, Laban selling his daughters and now Rachel selling her husband. But as a result of this, she has two more sons. Issachar, which means wages or reward. God has rewarded me. And this is kind of weird. God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. Yeah, I think Leah's sort of gone off the track here. Um, Then Zebulun means honor. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. And then later on, we're not told when, she has a daughter named Dinah. And now finally Rachel has a son, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. It's a wonderful expression that we find throughout scripture that God remembers someone. God remembers his people. And he remembered Rachel. He listened to her and he opened her womb. Rachel becomes pregnant. This is the Lord's doing. It is God who made it possible. And she has a son, Joseph, which means may he add. But it also sounds like taken away. It's one of those weird things in Hebrew. God has taken away my disgrace. May the Lord add to me another son. Something, you know, you finally have a son. You want another one. But she has her son, Joseph. Later on, she'll have one more son, that's Benjamin, but that is in the future. In conclusion, there are at least four things I want to bring to your attention today as we finish. First of all, as a result of Laban's deception, there were consequences. Because of the choices he made, there were consequences. Because he substituted Leah for Rachel, Leah finds herself in a loveless relationship. Her husband doesn't love her. She's not the one he wanted to marry. He wanted to marry her sister, Rachel. And so what you end up is having rivalry between the two sisters. It's one of the issues, I think, with polygamy, that it is not possible, I think, for the 
the relationship with the husband, with one wife and with the other wife, to be exactly the same. One will be favored over the other. And, uh, yeah, Laban should not have done this. He puts his daughter in a very difficult situation. Um, and there will be, this, will, this is a continuing issue. I think when difficulties come, the sisters come together in common cause. But Rachel's like, I want my family. Bilha, go, go sleep with Jacob so I can have my family. When in fact, they all are the part of the family of Jacob. But there were consequences to Laban's actions. But having said that, this is something I've really thought about. There is a tendency, and in fact, a lot of commentators, to see what happened to Jacob as karma. You know, and some commentators, without the ha, they're like, ha, the deceiver was deceived. Jacob deceived his father, and now is he is deceived. You know, what goes around comes around. You know, poetic justice. Look at this. He deceived his father, and now he's been deceived. And I would disagree strongly. Primarily because it's an impersonal way of looking at reality. Cause and effect. You do something, this will be the effect. When you do something, this will be the result. When in fact, God is infinite, but God is personal. God is always at work in our lives. But somebody might quote to me Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God will not or cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You know, so if you, if you sow deception, you're going to reap deception. Um, I would say to such a person, read the next verse, please. Read Galatians 6, 8. Okay. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature may, will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. It's talking about a way of life, not of individual actions. Oh, Jacob, you sowed deception and guess what? You got deceived. That's what you deserve. It's poetic justice. I would also quote another verse to people from that wonderful Psalm, Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. If a kind of Christian karma existed, by the way, karma in Hinduism and Buddhism is that whatever the sum total of your actions in this life will affect your next life because they believe in reincarnation. But Christians have sort of domesticated that and it's like, you know, whatever you do, you're going to suffer. You know, the same thing will happen to you. If that thing existed, if it was merely cause and effect, then we would all be in really serious trouble. God is gracious. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. There may be times of judgment and chastisement, of justice even. And you know, last week, Gia began reading through Lamentations. And particularly today, I was taking note as she read, you know, this is the Lord's anger. The Lord has done this. The Lord has judged us. It's what God is doing. It isn't, well, you know, we worship false idols, cause and effect. And so, no, this is the Lord's personal actions in our lives. Grace is where you get what you don't deserve. 
karma says you get what you deserve. In a book that came out, I think about 20 years ago, Bono, a lead singer of U2, uh, in, in a book, it's called Bono in Conversation with Mitchka Azayas. He said, I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross. I could not agree more. It's not karma. What happens to Jacob is Laban's fault. Laban has deceived Jacob. Okay. And Jacob and his wives suffer as a result of Laban's actions. So that's the second thing. The third thing is, you know, in the past, and I, I'm sure I've said this more than once, particularly in the Psalms, um, God refers to himself, and the psalmist refers to God as the God of Jacob. And I've, I've, I've always found that a little disturbing. Because if I was going to, you know, write up my CV or whatever, a reference, I, I don't know that I'd want to be identified with Jacob. Uh, the God of Jacob, and then you might in your head say, the deceiver, because he deceived Isaac. But what we have seen the last few Sundays is that the God of Jacob is a God of grace. He's the second son, not the first. He should not have been chosen, but God in grace chose him. And then he and his mother messed up the whole picture, the whole painting of divine grace, and God was still gracious to him and appeared to him in a dream and spoke to him. Karma is the polar opposite. It's getting what you deserve in a very impersonal way. It's a mathematical equation. You did this, this is what's going to happen to you. And that's what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. And I would say Jacob did not deserve that people would remember God as the God of Jacob. But that's precisely the point. He is a God of grace. And then lastly, to come full circle to where we started, God is the master artist. He is painting the picture of human history. He's weaving the tapestry, as Edith Schaefer would put it, the tapestry of our lives and of human history. We don't get to see the whole picture, okay? Sometimes in a tapestry or a needlepoint or embroidery, you can sort of see the picture from the front, but from the back, what you see are the knots, right? Where you tie off the thread. Um, I would say if we see anything, we see the knots. <laughs> we see the things, the difficulties in our lives, the way in which people mess up horribly. One day, by God's grace, we'll get to go around to the front of the tapestry. We'll get to go and see the painting of what God has been doing in human history. God sees the whole picture. We don't. And so rather than scheming or calculating or trying to figure out, okay, how can I get these things to work out? We are called to be obedient. I mean, how wonderful would the story have been if Rebecca had said to Jacob, you know, your father is going to give the blessing to Esau. But God said that you would be the one to get it. Let's trust that God will make a way. 
and then God would have intervened. But we'll never know because they schemed, they deceived, took advantage of a blind old man when God had freely promised all along. I think oftentimes we are guilty maybe more in the lives of others but maybe in our own lives that we think what the picture should look like or what the picture is going to look like and yeah I'm just not so sure in the same way when Moses hit the rock twice and then God said you're not going to the promised land Moses didn't go oh that's right I messed up the picture of the suffering Messiah no he disobeyed and so what we are called to do is to obey and we may hit rough patches we may be those knots in the back of the embroidery or the tapestry but God is painting the picture he's weaving the tapestry he knows what he's doing We don't. We're uncomfortable with that. And so we come up with, yeah, I know why God did this. Um, I don't think you do. You might imagine that you do. And there may be some sense to it that you can see. Let's leave that to God. Okay? Let's leave that to the painter. Let's leave that to the artist. Okay? Let's trust him and let's obey him. Even in this story that we've looked at today, a man lies and sells his daughters to Jacob. And then the sisters are rivals and they give their maidservants to Jacob. But, you know, as a result, we have the 12 tribes of Israel. Not the best way to go about it, but God can work through our lives when we mess up. But let's not go down that path and say, well, I can mess up and God will make it you know, come out smelling like roses. No. Let us obey God and trust him and honor him in what we do. Let's pray together. God of all grace, our loving Heavenly Father, we bow before you and acknowledge that you are the ruler of the universe, the ruler of our lives, and we are called to obey you. We freely confess that we don't always do so. And sometimes there are consequences. But oftentimes your grace intervenes. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. You're so gracious even when we sin. Well, you need to be gracious because of our sin. I thank you for what we see, what we have seen today in the life of Jacob. You are the God of Jacob. You are the God of all grace. May we trust you enough to obey you.
trust you enough to honor you in our obedience. And when we disobey, may we turn back in repentance. May we confess our sins and look to you for grace. We thank you for your mercy, for your love, above all, for sending your Son. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your grace and mercy go with us as we leave this place. We pray in a special way for Tess, who will be leaving us this week, be gone for a month, that you would keep her safe. May this be a fruitful time for her as she travels and sees various things, meets various peoples. And in your grace, bring her back to us safely. We are so grateful for her. Again, I thank you for your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.